I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday. It is great to be back, and I'm sitting here in our We the People studios at the Constitution Center with uh, my old friends, uh, 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 Jillian Metzger, uh, who is a high school classmate, and David Bernstein, a law school classmate, both are America's leading experts on the administrative state. Uh, Jillian Metzger is Stanley L. Fold Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. David Bernstein is the George Mason University Foundation Professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. We've just come from upstairs where we've had a superb discussion with a group of federal judges who are here for a a continuing legal education seminar on the future of the regulatory state. We had a great discussion, which was a good dress rehearsal for our uh, chat this morning. We're here to talk about the future of the regulatory state under President Trump. Jillian and David, welcome. It is so great to have you. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Jillian, let us jump right in. President Trump, at a series of press conferences and uh, announcements, has talked about the need to cut down on federal regulations during his first 100 days. What are some of the regulations that President Trump and Congress may attempt to roll back? Well, Jeff, you're right. I mean, we are seeing administrative law getting the headlines, um, uh, and that's going to be very much true for the next 100 days. There are certain areas which have been um, very contentious where the Obama administration had taken regulatory action. Probably the one that people have heard most about would be the Clean Power Plan, which was the administration's effort to deal with the problem of global warming. Um, there's also been regulations to deal uh, with um, the uh, residue of the financial crisis um, and implementing the Dodd-Frank Act that was enacted in response to it, um, and any number of other administrative actions that um, the uh, Obama administration took that um, uh, were challenged by Republicans when they were undertaken and are now subject to potential repeal um, by administrative agencies or um, trumping by Congress. Um, uh, there is a measure called the Congressional Review Act, which allows Congress to overturn rules within a particular set time frame that an agency has adopted. And one of the things that I expect we'll see um, in under the first 100 days, um, a little less than that because this measure is time limited, is some of the more contentious rules coming under a Congressional Review Act review and possibly being overturned. Separate, uh, separate from that, there's some other measures that have been proposed in Congress uh, that would limit administrative power. Um, uh, they've got funny acronyms like RAINS um, uh, is what one is called, which would basically mean all regulations have to be approved by Congress before they would go into effect. Um, another is called the Regulatory Accountability Act, which, if adopted, would impose um, significant procedural limits on agencies' ability to regulate. Um, those are measures that may get enacted. My guess is they're not going to be enacted in the first um, 100 days, uh, if they ever are, because they would make it more difficult for the Trump administration to repeal some of the rules that they have said they want to repeal. 
Fascinating. Thank you for setting us up so well. David, let's begin with the specific regulations Jillian flagged, including the environmental regulations involving the Clean Power Act, the Dodd-Frank financial regulations, maybe the Federal Communication Commission's net neutrality rules. How easy will it be for Congress to repeal these, and what's the procedure going to be? Well, if you want to repeal an actual act by a regulatory agency that's gone through what we call notice and comment, a public comment period, and then published in the Federal Register where regulations are published, you really either need new legislation uh, to repeal it, or you need to go through a new notice and comment period to redo things, and then that could get challenged in the courts. Well, if the agency said the rules are one way three years ago, what are you doing changing them? They're not supposed to change uh, just based on politics. One thing that I don't think has come up uh, yet today, but is interesting, is what happens if there are regulations that are being challenged by private parties who say these regulations are, are beyond the power of the EPA or other regulatory agencies, and the Trump administration just refuses to defend them anymore and says, you know what, we're going to just uh, let, def- let the other side win the case by default. Is there anything to stop the Trump administration from doing that? Uh, Jillian, is there anything to stop a Trump administration from doing that? And then talk about the uh, how you think this procedure might uh, pan out in Congress and which of these repeals might provoke court action as well. Right. Well, I mean, in terms of executive non-defense, which is what David was talking about, um, that is something that occasionally happens. Often the court will apo- appoint um, a- an amicus to represent the view that isn't um, being represented. So we could see that. Um, it's it's actually a very live issue because some of these rules, like the Clean Power Plan or the Waters of the United States uh, rule, they've actually been subject to litigation already and are currently stayed. Um, as a result, if the Trump administration doesn't go fur- further with um, defending them, we may f- face this question of what happens next on that front very soon. Um, in terms of what will happen in the courts, I mean, David's right. If, if you're you can repeal a rule by new legislation <clears throat> or by a new rule. But um, under the governing statutes, an agency can't just say, hey, we don't want that rule anymore. They have to go through a process for creating a new rule, which is called notice and comment rulemaking, which requires some pretty significant expenditure of time and resources to put out a proposed rule, to, com- to get public comment on it, to respond to that comment, to promulgate the new rule. And all of that then is subject to to legal challenge. And we can expect that efforts to repeal these rules will be subject to legal challenge on the grounds that the rules are statutorily required. So that's going to be a fairly extended process um, uh, before these rules of the Obama administration could just be um, uh, overturned by administrative action. That leaves the option of congressional action. And it's uh, one of the questions that remains to be seen is how active Congress will be um, in terms of repealing some of these rules. They've got a lot on their plate. Um, uh, Some measures like the Affordable Care Act seem very much in the crosshairs. Um, But the extent to which they're going to be willing and able to pass legislation that will repeal specific rules with everything else they've got going remains to be seen. Very interesting. David, uh, President Obama was criticized for passing controversial initiatives by executive order. The claim was that President Obama would propose to Congress, Congress would refuse to act, and he would enact these rules anyway, ranging from immigration to the environment. How many of President Obama's executive orders, simply because they are executive orders, can be repealed by President Trump? And a year from now, 
How might the regulatory landscape look differently as a result? Well, uh, President Obama's argument with regard to immigration reform was that the president has broad discretionary powers to decide how to enforce the immigration laws. And now we have that precedent from the so-called Office of Legal Counsel, which is the president's lawyers. So it would be very hard for anyone to argue that if Trump decides to completely change immigration enforcement, to repeal the rules that let the so-called dreamers and their families stay in the United States, and to enforce the immigration laws even in other ways that have not been precedented, that there's something wrong with that. So I think uh, Trump ran uh, to a large degree on wanting to uh, restrict immigration in a variety of ways and be less favorably inclined towards people who are here and undocumented status. And I expect we'll see that done. I expect we'll also see a repeal of various rules regard related to the Affordable Care Act, even if, con even if Congress hasn't acted yet. There are some things that were done by executive order or even just by PR press releases and blog posts uh, that could be undone just by the president's order. There's further issues that are actually even currently pending in court, such as the transgender bathroom rule, the rule that the Department of Education put out saying that all schools must allow children to use the bathroom of their gender as they identify it rather than by their biological sex. And that was very controversial. It's pending in the courts. I expect that since there was never actually a formal rule enacted and it was just an announcement, this is our policy, that doesn't need to go through a whole formal process. And that could just be done away with within the next year, and I expect it will be. Interesting. Jillian, so David mentioned immigration, the Affordable Care Act, the Title IX rules. Are there other Obama executive orders that you think Trump will be successful in repealing by executive order of his own? Right. Well, David's absolutely right. I mean, an executive order... Um, is subject to change by the new president um, or by the president um, uh, uh, himself who issues it. Um, so I do expect to see a lot of executive orders um, changed. Um, I think the immigration instance is interesting. Um, one of the questions that that may create is in terms of whether or not individuals who've come forward and identified themselves have any argument about reliance um, or due process claim against um, having that information then used as enforcement action against them. I think that would be unlikely for the agencies to do, but um, uh, we might see some issues there of, of some kind of constraint on um, how that information could be used. Um, the other thing we may very well be seeing in the immigration area is actually um, some efforts to go after states and localities um, that are refusing to cooperate in federal immigration enforcement. Um, that's something that I think would very much uh, land in litigation. And there, um, one of the cases that could be used by cities like New York or Los Angeles um, uh, against the Trump administration effort to yank their funding for not uh, going along with immigration requirements um, are, is exactly the case that was brought against the Obama administration on the Affordable Care Act, uh, NFIB versus Sebelius where the court had uh, held that the effort to pull back all Medicaid funding from states that didn't expand their Medicaid programs would be coercive. And I expect that if the Trump administration does go after state and localities um, threatening their funding for not complying with immigration, we're going to see that case now used uh, by liberal and progressive cities and states in order to uh, try and push back on um, that Trump administration initiative. That's an especially interesting example because I think constitutional law changes and develops most radically when there's a confluence of interest between the two sides. So the conservative justices 
like the idea of protecting the rights of localities and states to defy the federal government because it supports federalism. At least as long as Trump's in power, progressives have a strong interest in not letting Trump use the power of the federal government to run roughshod over states and localities that want to resist some of his policies. And that might lead some of the justices on the court who are generally on the progressive side to be more likely to vote with the other side. So since NFIB versus Sebelius, the Obamacare case, was the first case to really put any limits on Congress's power to coerce the states through federal financing, through saying, we'll take away your money if you don't do things. We don't really know what the scope of it is. It might be the scope will turn out to be broader than we think because of its confluence of interests. We'll say more about that, Jillian. This is a movement called Progressive Federalism. The intellectual guru of it is Heather Gerken at, at Yale Law School, a friend of the Constitution Center who's argued uh, as you've suggested, that states and localities should be free to resist federal policies uh, with which they disagree, including creating sanctuary cities against immigration reform. So, Jillian, um, do you, first of all, unpack the constitutional arguments. What does it mean to have coercive conditions on spending? What constitutional provisions does that violate? And then do you expect the conservative justices to be principled defenders of federalism when progressives are pushing it as they were when conservatives were pushing it. Um, so the, the idea here about coercive spending, and again, as, as David said, the NFIB versus Sebelius was the first case that actually held a condition on spending was unconstitutionally coercive um, as applied to the states. Um, and the idea here is basically um, the federal government can't force states and localities to implement federal programs. Um, it can't force them to enact legislation to implement them, and it can't force state and local executive officials to undertake executive actions implementing federal programs. So what can the federal government do? Well, it can tell the states and localities, if you want this money, you have to do these things for us as a condition on the spending. That's one of the main ways in which state and localities are involved in federal programs. There's another way, which is basically to tell the states and localities, look, if you want to regulate in this area, you have to regulate according to these terms or we're going to do it directly. That's called conditional preemption, um, and it's, an, it's the other main tool. So it's really that first one of conditional spending that's in play. And the idea is in order for conditional spending to be constitutionally legitimate, the states and localities who are the recipients of federal funds have to have a real choice as to whether or not they take the funds subject to the conditions or not. And uh, if you're threatening to yank all of a state or locality's federal funding, um, which is going to be a huge percentage of their budget, the argument would be that becomes coercive. They can't really not agree to the federal government's terms um, in that context. That's what the court held in Sibelius. And they said, look, if you're threatening states with losing all of their Medicaid funding, that's a very significant percentage of their budgets, no state can really say no uh, to the federal government if that's what the threat that, that's being held out against them. So that would be the argument that would be made um, if the, the Trump administration tries to yank um, all federal funding from states and localities that don't go along with um, uh, immigration issues. There are other restrictions that could come into play too um, about the restriction having to be known and clear and closely tied to the funding. Um, uh, that's part of the progressive federalism story. I think what we're also going to see is we're going to see a lot of suits by states and localities against efforts 
um, by the Trump administration to roll back some regulations. Um, we've actually seen those suits during the Obama administration. They were mainly brought by conservative or red state um, uh, attorney generals. Um, Texas took the lead. And they challenged any number of regulatory actions that the Obama administration took, um, including the bathroom uh, uh, guidance that David referred to. What we're going to see now, now that the White House has switched over to Republican hands, is more blue states and Democratic states are going to bring those suits um, to efforts by the Trump administration to roll back rules that those states um, think should go forward. David, will, will, will those suits succeed? And I'll ask you the, the question of whether you think that judges and justices will be consistent defenders of federalism when the shoe is on the other foot. Uh, I think actually they probably will because um, these the, I th the issues that are um, at stake are very are not really things that the justice is, it's not so it's not so close to justice's heart that they will give up uh, the federalist principles to worry about immigration reform, for example. Uh, you know, it's. Um, sort of a stereotype but true that despite the fact that we have conservative justices, these are not conservatives who represent sort of NASCAR nation. Uh, the, the justices who are conservatives on the Supreme Court are people who went to Ivy League law schools. They've lived in Washington, D.C. and other big metropolitan areas. And at least a certain amount of cultural libertarian values have penetrated uh, them. And things like Illegal immigration are not the kind of red meat issues they care about. Some of them care a lot about abortion. Some of them care a lot about property rights. None of them, I think, particularly care about federal enforcement of immigration. And if it's a choice between expanding uh, the federalism jurisprudence originally of the Rehnquist Court and the so-called but mostly fizzled uh, federalism revolution of the 1990s and being able to get liberals on their side or worrying about whether states could be coerced with regard to immigration, I think that they'll take the side of broader federalism protections. And one interesting thing that we haven't mentioned is that part of NFIB versus Sebelius, the part that said that you can coerce uh, through federal funding by threatening to take all the Medicaid funding away from the states, that was seven to two. So you already have two of the liberal justices who signaled at least one, some willingness to expand, to enforce and expand that doctrine. Um, Jillian, David just mentioned the so-called fizzled federalism revolution of the 1990s, uh, a beautiful alliteration. Um, there has been an effort among scholars, including uh, Randy Barnett at, at Georgetown Law School, who is here at the phenomenal Federal Judicial Center Conference, is on the National Constitution Center Advisory Board, and has a great new book out called Our Republican Constitution, Securing the Liberty and Sovereignty of We the People. Uh, Randy Barnett is the leader of the movement that really argues that much of the post-New Deal regulatory state is unconstitutional. And it's a complicated argument, and there are lots of parts of it, but why don't you give our listeners a sense of what sort of constitutional, major constitutional challenges we might see to major parts of the administrative or regulatory state. And listeners, when I say, you know, regulatory state, I mean things like the Environmental Protection Agency, the uh, Federal Communications Commission, and all of these uh, alphabet soup agencies that were began to be created in the progressive era. What sort of constitutional challenges might we see and how might they fare? Sure. Um, well, I think we're actually at a point where we're seeing a more sustained, uh, popular, and academic attack on the constitutionality of the administrative state than we've seen um, really since going back to the New Deal um, uh, in the uh, early decades of the 20th century. 
and it takes a, this attack takes a variety of forms. Um, I, it um, obviously is very much interlaced with particular political views um, I, a, as well. But on the constitutional front, it tends to focus on where it is that these administrative agencies get their authority to do the kinds of actions that they're doing, um, whether or not their structures are at odds with the principles of separating power that lie in the Constitution, um, and whether or not um, there are reasons to be particularly concerned about the president amassing unilateral or executive power um, that is um, uh, insufficiently constrained by the courts um, or by Congress. So in terms of the question of where do agencies get their power, agencies get power from Congress often as a result of very broad grants of power. Um, uh, you know, regulate in the public interest is one of the guiding principles, um, for example, for the FCC. Um, that's a pretty broad delegation. Um, and over the years, uh, the claim has been periodically raised that that is an unconstitutionally broad delegation. I expect we'll see that kind of claim coming up, although the Supreme Court has rejected it pretty solidly um, many, many times. So I don't think that claim is going to actually get judicial sanction, but it may lead courts to look more closely at the kinds of actions agencies are taking um, I, and subject them to more searching judicial review. Um, we're seeing right now challenges also to the um, combination of uh, uh, adjudication in agencies along with enforcement activities um, and claims being raised both that that combination violates um, principles of due process um, and also that the agency officials who are um, overseeing those adjudications have not been uh, appointed in the way that the Constitution requires. Um, again, the Supreme Court has rejected the due process argument, the idea that this combination is unfair before. Um, uh, so I don't expect it to get much traction now, but we might see some narrowing in how statutes are read um, or actions are scrutinized. And we may see this question of the status of administrative judges um, coming up before the court as there's now a, a split among the lower federal courts on that question. David, tell our listeners more about this case that Jillian just mentioned. Uh, it, it's called Bandemir. Uh, it comes out of the Tenth Circuit, and it argues that the appointment of administrative law judges uh, is unconstitutional because it violates the Appointments Clause. Uh, listeners, you can check out the Appointments Clause on the Interactive Constitution, but David is going to give us a summary. What are administrative law judges? Why do they do? Why did the Bandemir case say that their appointment was unconstitutional? And what's the argument on the other side? So... The Constitution, of course, has sets up three branches of government, executive, judicial, and legislative. The judicial power, according to the Constitution, is given to judges through Article 3. They have to be confirmed by the Senate, and they have lifetime appointments, uh, and they're subject to all the normal protections of due process and other judicial proceedings we think of as being your standard judicial proceedings. Uh, there are, however, more than, even more than the number of actual Article Three federal judges we have, there are so-called uh, Article One administrative law judges. They used to be called something else, but they were upset. They didn't get to be called judges, so Congress, <laughs> instead of giving them a pay raise, started calling them judges. Uh, but in fact, they do exercise. This is true. Uh, they do exercise judicial functions. They 
they, if you are someone who has filed or may file in the future bankruptcy, you don't go to an Article Three lifetime appointed judge. You go to an Article One judge who is part of the executive branch, who has a term appointment, uh, who has not been confirmed by anybody, uh, and who eventually, after several uh, other other steps, you can get judicial review from the Article Three, but initially you don't. So the argument is that at least some Article One judges who are exercising uh, what amounts to the judicial power as the Constitution defines it, are unconstitutional because they should be, in fact, Article Three judges that are, again, confirmed uh, by a majority vote of the Senate and have lifetime appointment, uh, and they cannot be under the executive branch. And the counter-argument is simply, uh, as a matter of practicality, that we have all these administrative adjudications that need to be adjudicated. And if we had to go through the full, if we had to, A, if we had to appoint all these administrative law judges as Article Three judges, it would be much more expensive. There's a limited number of people we trust to be Article Three judges. The current Article Three judges would get very upset because it would be a blow to their prestige to expand the number of these judges. That's a very serious argument that the Article Three judges themselves have not been shy to make. Uh, but also it just muck up the works. This is a more efficient way of handling things like social security appeals, bankruptcy cases, and whatnot. Great. So, Jillian, how big a deal would it be if the Supreme Court were to accept the argument that these administrative law judges, which in this Bandemir case worked for the Securities and Exchange Commission, were unconstitutional because they were appointed under Article Three, uh, under Article 1 rather than Article 3 of the Constitution? And how much did our listeners care about this, this case? Right. So there, I think there, there's another issue as well about the appointments to, to get on the table, which is, even if they are legitimately executive officers, what level of executive officer they are and whether they were appointed according to the appropriate appointment scheme for that kind of executive officer. So um, the Constitution, again, if you look at the Appointments Clause, the, the Appointments Clause has both provisions for how what are called pr principal officers are appointed and also how inferior officers are appointed. And then there's even a third category category called employees who don't even get constitutional mention. Um, and the ALJs are um, uh, in the SEC are appointed by the chief uh, ALJ of the SEC, um, who is not one of the entities that can constitutionally appoint inferior officers in the Constitution. And so if these ALJs are inferior officers, their appointment would be unconstitutional, leaving aside any Article III um, issue. Um, I, so, um, and as I mentioned, there's, there's, uh, this is a case that may get up to the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme Court has been pretty clear in upholding, um, the use of non-Article III adjudication. Um, uh, the, the exact reason and rationale for why it's constitutional has changed a little bit over time. In a most recent decision, which is called Stern versus Marshall, the Supreme Court emphasized the difference between um, what are called public rights and what are called private rights and said that non-Article III adjudication um, was fine for the public rights side of things. Um, whether or not that division makes a difference to how the administrative state runs depends a whole lot on how you define a public right. And in this case, the Supreme Court took a very broad definition to public right suggesting, as a result, that a lot of non-Article III adjudication by administrative agencies is fine. Um, uh, my own view is that the Supreme Court is not likely to revisit that. Um, 
uh, and they don't consider administrative adjudication to be as troubling as bankruptcy, in part because of the structure by which administrative adjudication occurs under the Governing Administrative Procedure Act. You get a decision by an ALJ who has very significant independence protections and a real separation of functions, uh, the kinds of things that the ALJ can do is really just adjudicate. Um, and then it goes up to the commission uh, to decide whether or not they agree or not. Um, and then from there, you can get judicial review. Um, I think that the Supreme Court is likely to uphold that as an adequate um, uh, under Article Three arrangement. Um, the question of the status of uh, ALJs and whether or not they are inferior officers or mere employees, um, my guess is that they will likely uphold them as employees because I don't think they want to really call ALJ's um, status too much into question. It would be very disruptive. Um, that said, it's also, if they were to hold the SEC ALJs to be inferior officers, I think it has a pretty easy fix in terms of the SEC uh, just enacting a rule that would mean that the ALJs are appointed by the SEC itself rather than by the chief ALJ. So um, fairly easily fixable in the short term. Very interesting. Very well explained. Listeners, I know that this is very wonky stuff. I, I haven't taken administrative law for a long time. Jillian and David are the world experts, and they're explaining it really clearly. But to understand this, you really have to dig into the legal arguments. And you need to go to the interactive constitution. I do too. But go to the um, uh, appointments clause essays. Go to the vesting clause, Article 1, Section 1, where there are some great essays by Naomi Rao and William Eskridge. And this is the time for you to really educate yourselves about the structural constitutional arguments, because this is going to determine the future of the regulatory state. David, to pull back to an issue that's uh, immediately easy to grasp, the president's responsibility to take care that the law is faithfully executed. Uh, president Obama was challenged for his immigration orders for violating the take care clause, although the Supreme Court didn't reach that question. What are the kind of challenges to President Trump and his alleged failure to take care that the laws are faithfully executed that we might see? You know, in theory, uh, there should be less room for conflict between President Trump and Congress because he has a Congress now of his own party. Oh, President Obama um, was more potential, had more uh, re reason in theory to uh, do things unilaterally, including refusing to execute laws that they couldn't get Congress to change because Congress was not cooperative with them and vice versa. On the other hand, Trump is Trump, uh, and there are some divisions within the Republican Party of, of exactly what direction you should take in a variety of things. Plus, at least for now, the filibuster still exists, which in effect means that you need 60 votes to get legislation passed by the Senate, uh, and the Republicans only have 52. So there may be things on Trump's deregulatory agenda that either because the Republicans won't cooperate or because the Republicans can't defeat the filibuster that Trump will want to do. And he now has some precedents from the Obama administration uh, where the, which, are, which uh, amount to the president being able to say, well, Congress isn't cooperating is a really important issue. Uh, and I'm just going to in, uh, tell my um, subordinates in the government as the head of the executive branch, as the head of the branch that actually enforced the law, just don't enforce this law. President Obama issued an order to his uh, U.S. attorneys, the local federal attorneys around the country, that they are not to enforce federal marijuana laws in states where marijuana has been legalized. I am going to tell the IRS not to enforce the estate tax. 
I'm going to tell the IRS that no one has to pay more than 15% capital gains tax. I'm going to tell the IRS that uh, we have too high a corporate tax in this country. It's the highest in the world at 35%. From now on, don't require, don't in, engage in any enforcement actions against any company that's paid 20%. Uh, now, this is these would all be to me outrageous violations of the president's duty to see that the law is faithfully executed, which is an explicit constitutional duty on the one hand. On the other hand, given our rules for who has what we call standing to challenge the president's actions, it's not clear if the president refuses to prosecute somebody. If the president goes ahead and prosecutes someone illegally, that person clearly has standing to challenge it. If he refuses to prosecute someone, who has ch standing to challenge that? So it could be that Congress itself has standing or certain members of Congress have standing as people who voted for the legislation in question or it could be that the court will choose to expand taxpayer standing uh, in the future to allow any aggrieved citizen. But for now, it, it is a very we have we've had a strong norm in this country that presidents just enforce laws whether they like them or not. That norm broke down a little bit during the Obama administration, and there's a real concern that it might break down further in the Trump administration. Very interesting. Jillian, liberals faced with claims that President Obama had failed to take care that the laws were faithfully executed over immigration tended to dismiss those claims. Um, might they feel differently if President Trump refuses to enforce the estate tax, the capital gains tax, uh, and or the corporate tax? And how might those challenges fare in court? Sure. I mean, I think you have to uh, pull apart um, the claim of non-enforcement writ large from the particular statutory scheme where it is raised. Um, another way to see a take care clause challenge is really just that the actions by the president are not statutorily authorized or that violate the governing statute. In the immigration context, the argument was that the immigration statutes actually give the president tremendous discretion to exercise this kind of prosecutorial discretion. Um, and in addition, that there were important constitutional and administrative reasons to have the policy on how enforcement was going to take place be issued publicly by uh, Jay Johnson, the head uh, of DHS, which was the agency that has the immigration enforcement responsibilities, um, to make sure that it actually was adhered to um, and enforced consistently, um, which had been some problems in the past. That was a statute that, again, the argument was gave a tremendous amount of discretion. In the case of the estate tax, um, uh, the IRS, I think, probably has tremendous discretion about who it prosecutes or not for tax violations, but it's not clear that there's the same degree of discretion about amounts that are owned. Um, it's also not clear, I don't know um, tax enforcement, but whether or not uh, it's possible for, for example, U.S. attorneys to ever bring a claim um, to enforce tax statutes separate from the IRS. So there might be other enforcement mechanisms out there that um, might not be as easily controlled. Um, but certainly if the president um, or the IRS were to issue a statement of final policy saying we are not going to enforce this statute the way that President Obama uh, said he wasn't going to enforce um, for certain groups uh, the immigration laws, that policy is then subject to challenge in court for its legality. Um, and one of the reasons why it's very important that these policies be put forward in the guise of a final policy is precisely so that you can get judicial review of whether or not that policy is legal. Great. Uh, David, let's pull back to 10,000, if not 30,000 feet. The last time we saw a sustained 
constitutional challenge to the administrative state was before the New Deal, when the, the court did strike down uh, some of the New Deal, uh, but then changed its mind. Is it plausible that a broad scale constitutional challenge to the post-New Deal administrative state might succeed if Trump gets another Supreme Court uh, seat or two? I think I think that you hit upon exactly the issue. It's something I've actually discussed with Ray Barnett, whose name came up earlier. Now, constitutional constitutional revolutions don't happen by five to four vote. Uh, whenever anything radical comes up, there's always one justice who takes a step, not always, but there's often one justice who takes a step back and says, I don't really want to go that far. And if you look, for example, the Warren Court, the Warren Court didn't really get rolling until it had a 6-3 majority, 7-2 majority of, of liberals on the court in the 1960s. So I think, I don't think that the administrative state writ large is going anywhere, but I think if you're going to see any substantial changes that we might and it's you know, hard to predict what they might be. But if, you, if we expect to see any sub- really substantial changes in the current law of what's constitutional or not, I don't think it's going to happen on a five to four vote. I think Justice Chief Justice Roberts, for example, has shown that he uh, isn't all that eager to do anything too radical and, and so forth. But I think if it got to be six, three, seven, two, and you had another, especially if the justices uh, who were added were in the mold, more of, the, of Alito and Thomas and less uh, Kennedy and... Roberts, the more conservative, more radical justices, I think you could see some substantial changes. Uh, a lot, again, depends on exactly who the justices are. And a lot depends, I think, on um, whether they're getting political support for Congress. One reason the federalism revolution fizzled, uh, in my view, is that when it came time for the court to put up or shut up in a case called Gonzalez versus Raich, which involved the question of whether the federal government could regulate marijuana uh, grown non-commercially for medical reasons in a state where it was legal with no commercial transactions at all, uh, the Republican Congress did not support uh, the court at all uh, in in the idea of we should strike this down. There were drug warriors. This was a big issue. The Bush administration was very much favorably inclined towards enforcing it. By contrast, when the Affordable Care Act came out and they got five votes to at least hold that in some ways it was unconstitutional, the Republicans were almost united in wanting to see this struck down. So I think we have an interaction between who's on the court and whether the political forces out there, at least on one side of the aisle, are supportive of what the court might be doing. Very interesting. It is time, uh, Jillian and David, for closing arguments. Uh, Jillian, project forward uh, in a year how much of the regulatory state might be repealed. Is that repeal likely to come from Congress or the courts or a combination of the two? And why should our listeners care? Um, uh, I don't think that much of the, in a year, that much of the Ministry of State will be repealed. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some significant tinkering at the edges. Again, some rules might be reversed by Congress. Um, There may also very well be underway significant efforts by the Trump administration to roll back some rules, but it might very well take longer than a year to get that done. Um, uh, If the question is about more radical change, I think people should be concerned. Um, I think that we have a, a, a way in which we attack the administrative state and government um, as uh, limiting our freedom and as uh, a constraint on American initiative. And we take for granted all of the very important work that government does in terms of protecting us against harms like pollution, protecting workers against exploitation, uh, protecting building um, uh, bridges, building uh, uh, transportation networks. 
any number protecting us against, um, if you think about the FDA, protecting us against unsafe drugs. The kinds of things that we take for granted that government does, does depend on it being able to operate, um, uh, to being able to regulate, to being able to adjudicate, to being able to enforce. Um, and I think that those are often programs that Republicans want as well as Democrats. And when push comes to shove, if there's a real serious curtailment uh, in what administrative agencies can do, I think that the American people will wake up and, and realize that's not what they, what they want. Thank you very much for that. David, in a year, how much of the regulatory state will be repealed? Will it come from Congress or the courts? And why should our listeners care? I, I think they'll be tinkering on the margins. We have what a three three or four trillion dollar budget uh, and a regular what they so called a regulatory budget that's almost as big. And I don't suspect we'll see more than a few percent of that be chipped away at. But there'll be some significant changes. Immigration law will have an effect on millions of people. Uh, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act will affect even more people. Uh, I suspect we'll see a lot of changes to regulation of education. We'll get rid of. Uh, probably the various guidances that the Department of Education has that has changed curricula across the country will leave more room for innovation. And I think overall, uh, maybe immigration aside, many of these things will it'll be good to devolve these things more to the states, precisely because the country is so divided now. We have red states and blue states at each other's throat, and I think this is a really good argument for federalism. If the, if the, if the two sides can't get along and marriage counseling isn't working, divide the line in the, you know, in the, in, divide the house with a bright blue uh, tape and have one side live on one side, one side live on the other side, interact occasionally when they have to cooperate for their kids or whatnot, but otherwise <laughs> let them live their own lives. Okay, okay. very uh, vivid metaphor and a great discussion. Listeners, do do follow-up readings and start with Jillian and David's great work. Uh, Jillian has a wonderful article called Administrative Constitutionalism uh, and a, a bunch of other great pieces that you can read. David has a superb book, Rehabilitating Lochner, Defending Individual Rights. He was interested in that topic back in law school, and it's just such a thrill to see both him and Jillian thriving in the many years that have intervened since we grew up together. Uh, Jillian and David, it's been wonderful to have you at the Constitution Center. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org or me. That's a much better way of getting to me. Jay Rosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education, which is more crucial than ever. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.